Today's reading is from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 to 38. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. And so I poured out my wrath on them, because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins... I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is God's word. Well, good evening. Good evening. Let me have my hello. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. I'm on the uh, staff here. 
And uh, if you've been here for a double hit since four o'clock, well done you uh, for the ordinations that we had. And particular thanks to musicians who've been here all afternoon on the nicest afternoon of the year so far. So uh, many thanks to you. And um, we'll need God's help as we begin. So let's pray together. Our loving Father, we've expressed in, in almost everything we've sung this evening that uh, we are helpless, helpless, unless you act. We cannot save ourselves unless you act. We have no taste of how good you are unless you act. We'll understand nothing of Ezekiel 36 unless you act. So please, by your Spirit, would you act? Would you change us this evening? For the sake of your name, amen. Now, sometimes you're, you are just brought to the end of your resources and you have to ask for help. And sometimes that's okay. So you could be, um, you could be Ireland. Uh, and um, uh, think just, no, it's fine, it's fine. We don't, we don't need financial help. We don't need financial help. We're fine. Really? You know, we're fine. We don't need financial help. We're fine. No, we don't need financial... All right, just give us billions of bailout, please. And eventually you're brought to the point where you say, okay, you just can't deny it anymore. We need help. And uh, it comes to the tune of several billion pounds. And it may be in smaller things in our own lives as individuals. Um, we uh, get to the point at the end of our resources. I myself are particularly stubborn, hard to believe, but uh, particularly stubborn with um, directions. If for some reason I'm coming to your house, just expect at about 20 minutes after the arranged time, I finally get round to phoning you. 20 minutes is about my stubbornness level, where I shall wander the streets, determined that I will find my way to your house without help, not any passers-by, and certainly not you having to admit my um, incompetence with a basic map. Uh, but after about 20 minutes, I'll just say, okay, I can't do it. I can't do it. Where are you? And um, normally I'm be below your window or something like that. Very close indeed. But sometimes you're brought to the end of your resources and you have to say, oh, okay, help, help. Now, the book of Ezekiel is much like that. It's much like that in, in the way it's structured. We've uh, we looked at that over the last few weeks. Uh, really, chapters 1 to 33 of the book of Ezekiel are, are saying to the people then, you are hopeless. You are absolutely hopeless and you can do nothing to save yourselves. You can do nothing to prevent Jerusalem being destroyed. You are hopeless and without hope. So if you've missed those chapters, you've missed out, kind of. But then from chapter 33 to the end, chapter 48 of the book, God says, hope in me. Now, there have been hints of that before, but really the first three chapters are despair of yourself. You can't do it and then we reach 33 to the end, 48, but you can trust in me, and I will. I will do what you require. I will save you. And what's it's just so today, um, we need to despair of ourselves and put our hope in God. What's this is the message of the whole Bible, but it's particularly acute when we're looking at um, this book of Ezekiel. We need to, uh, just in, in a, on a personal level, Despair that of our own devices we can ever find our way to heaven. Despair that we can ever find fulfillment in this life. But trust that in God we can. 
And then at a, at a national level, I don't know if, if you think much about such things. I, I hope that you do. But at a national level, the hope for this nation is for Christians to slightly despair. Well, we, we'll, sort out, we'll sort out this country. We can do it. It's a Christian country once. It'll be a Christian country again. And if we just work hard and lobby enough and, and active enough, we'll change things. Well, probably not. We need to put a hope in God for change. Despair of yourselves and put your hope in God. What is this? That's not a bad summary of this book of Ezekiel. And it becomes particularly acute in um, verse 36. The, what the people need is uh, there in verse 26, which is in a sense the heart of the, of the chapter. Chapter 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will do it. I will radically change you. No tinkering around the edges. No a little tweak here and there. Radically rewire you. That's what the Bible, um, scholars are referring to the Bible, which is called regeneration. They're throughout the biblical picture, uh, throughout the uh, uh, Old and New Testament. God needs to come and, by his spirit, give new life to someone. They need to be regenerated, born again. Start over. That's what every individual needs. And if this nation has any hope, really, that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a, a mass movement where people are born again. I, look, we'll work through it. I know it has a slightly negative connotations, that term. It's starting over. And that's God's work. He can do it. You can't. I can't. He can. We need him to be at work. God will act. That's certainly his promise uh, to the people in Ezekiel's day. And he says in, verse, in this chapter, he'll do it, he will act to save people and to save the nation, but he'll do it for the sake of his name. And again, that's not a bad summary of the whole uh, book of Ezekiel. God will act in judgment, chapters 1 to 33, in salvation, 33 to the end, for the sake of his name, for his honor's sake. Now, the first bit of the chapter then, let, let's jump in, is in one sense a little bit of a summary. So God has, if I dare put it this way, two problems in uh, verses 16 to 21. There are two problems. The first problem should be familiar if you've been here over the last um, few weeks or so. The first problem in verses 16 to 19 is there's a defiled people in a holy land. That's the problem for God a defiled people in a holy land. So look down with me, verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct, their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because, two reasons, they'd shed blood in the land and because they'd defiled it with their idols. Now we've said repeatedly, the land in the Old Testament is a sort of spiritual barometer of how the people are doing. When they are faithful, the land is fertile and their crops are prosperous. When they are unfaithful, disaster and famine. So the, the land is completely intertwined with how faithful the people are. So there are two problems with them being in the land. They're in um, uh, verse 18. One, they've been immoral. They've shed blood in the land. And two, they've been unfaithful to God. The two are related. But they've defiled the land with idols. 
So two, you know, there's the problem. You've got a defiled people in a holy land. And God says, I am perfect and pure. And therefore, if there's a foul and defiled people, they can't be in my land. And they're thrown out. And it's a vivid picture, isn't it? There in verse um, 17. The people thought to themselves, well, God, you know, God love us. We're nice people. We're nice people. We could think, easily think here tonight. We're nice people. And of course God likes us. It's again, vivid pictures. They've often been in this book. Now look, the conduct of the people was like, verse 17, a pile of used tampons in my sight. That's what it was like. Now don't get hung up on the woman thing. That's just uh, Leviticus 15. That is a picture of uncleanness. Just as uh, male emissions, if you had gonorrhea, that would make you unclean as well. Disgusting pictures. But here he just picks on this one and says, you know what? When I think of you, I just think a bunch of used tampons. They're just oozing gunk. Now who wants that near them? Take that to bed with you? Put that on display in your living room? No, what... what Forgive me, it's, it's God's picture. They're good for one thing. You flush them away. And essentially God said, my people have got so foul, they were good for one thing. I just had to flush them away. Flush them away. They had to get out of the land. So what is this? that's one picture or one problem that God has as, or had. as a defiled people in a holy land. So what did he do? He threw them out. So we've said this in 597 and then in 587 BC on two occasions, Jerusalem invaded and the people driven out, scattered. They lose their capital, they lose their land. In one sense, that problem is dealt with. But there's a second problem, I can put it that way for God, uh, verses 20 to 21. That is, his name is profaned among the nations. Verses 20, 21. Wherever they went, the Israelites, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they'd gone. You can imagine what was going on. There's this group of people, the Israelites, and they've been conquered in battle. And there you are, Joe Babylonian, probably not called Joe, but uh, you're, you know, you're Mr. and Mrs. Average Babylonian, and you see all these prisoners of war marching through, and you say, oh, who's that over there? Those are the, uh, the, the Israelites. Oh, yeah, who's their God? Yahweh was their God. Oh, right, but they've been conquered in battle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, he rocks, doesn't he? He is the great general. Yeah, yeah, our king is a good king. And Marduk, our God, is a good God. Praise be to Marduk, praise be to Nebuchadnezzar, and Yahweh, he's a loser. And God says, no, I'm not very happy with that. My name is being profaned among the nations. Profaned, treated just like any other name. Many of us are Christians, of course, and uh, we'll have friends who'll say, you know, we'll be working in the office, or we'll work with a friend, and someone will do something wrong, and they go, oh, Jesus. And they might look up and say, oh, sorry. Didn't mean anything by that. And that's the point. They've taken Jesus' name and used it, like it just doesn't matter. I don't mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's neither here nor there. They have taken something which is precious and made it ordinary. That is what it means to profane. And God says, I, I'm not content with that. That is a problem for me. I will act for the sake of my name. 
So there's the backdrop. Two problems. There's a defiled people in a holy land. There's a profaned name amongst the pagans. God has dealt with one. He can do with that just by throwing the people out, flushing them away from the land. But the second one, his name, that's what this chapter's about. God says, I will act for the honor of my name. Three things. Three things. That, and we'll, uh, we'll go through them fairly quickly. Three things then. He's going to act, the Lord. First then, the, the Lord's motive is his name. That's why he'll act. His motive is his name. Verses uh, 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, rescue you, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Or again in um, verse 32, similar idea. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. So God is going to say, okay, I am going to rescue you. I'm going to change you and and, and sort things out. But just to be very, very clear, O Israel, it's not because of you. You're, well, I've just spent 33 chapters saying you're a mess. I've just told you, in my sight, you look like a load of used tampons. So it's not because there's anything nice about you. It's for my sake. Now, it's very striking. I don't suppose the people thought that. I don't suppose many people would ever assume that today. People would think, if there's a God, he'll like me. I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm a noble character. People don't like me. No. No, for his name's sake. That's why he'll act. For the sake of his name. I mean, that's slightly shocking for us. God doesn't assume we're nice. But again, he's saying, despair of yourself. Put your hope in me. Now, let's pause a little bit on this because um, sometimes people ask the question, okay, so God's saying he's going to act for the sake of his name. That sounds a bit like a um, sort of bit, bit Diva-esque, really, uh, a bit throwing a strop. Who, you know, she wanders into her, um, with her entourage into the dressing room and says, these are the wrong nuts. Um, isn't it a bit like that? God is saying, I'm doing it for my name. I'm not doing it for your sake. Does it sound a bit like that, a little bit... A little bit self-centered of God to assume he's only going to act for his sake. Say a couple of things on that. The first is, God doesn't need us. Just to be clear, God doesn't need us. So Psalm 50 verse 9, God puts it this way. I have no need of your sacrifices. I have no need of the, of the bull in your pen. I have no need of the goats in your field. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I'm hungry, I wouldn't tell you, says the Lord. He was saying, I don't need you. I don't need humanity. I'm God. I was reading something this week. Um, on the same issue, it was a slightly vivid picture. The guy put it this way. It's not that God gets to a Thursday and thinks, God, you know what? I just can't wait for Sunday. I'm feeling a bit lonely. 
I just can't wait for Sunday when they crack out those guitars and strike up and have a good sing in my name because, you know, it's Thursday and I'm feeling a bit blue and my ego needs a bit of a stroke and I'm lonely up here. So roll on Sunday and um, then I'll be feeling good about myself again. God doesn't need us. Before the world was created, he was very utterly content, Father, Son, Spirit, Perfect relationship, no complications, no petty jealousies or anything. Just perfect, perfectly content, perfectly serving, perfectly loving. He doesn't need us. So God doesn't proclaim the sake of his name because he needs anything from us. He does it because, in the language of John 17, he wants to share his glory with us. It's a gift. So one, God doesn't need us. And two, just to really reinforce this, uh, his name is good for us. The fact that he raises up his name, acts for the sake of his name, is very good for us. So verse 23 here um, brings it out. Why is God going to do this? I'll show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them. Why? Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord then the nations will know. So you see, there's three groups here. God says to his people in the Old Testament, Israel, I'm not doing it for your sake. There is nothing special about you at all. But I am going to rescue you so that these people over here, onlookers, look on and say, oh, their God is the true God and the living God. So when God raises up his name, it is so people look on and say, huh, He does things that no other God can do. So God raising up his name is for our good. Consider it this way. Uh, There's a scientist. uh, His name, we call him Dr. Foster. And uh, Dr. Foster, um, doesn't go to Gloucester, don't get confused. But um, Dr. Foster, he creates, amazingly, a cure-all pill for cancer. Extraordinary. For all sorts of cancers and calls it something suitably medical, Foster Dioxipran or something like that. And he creates this pill, and it's extraordinary. It works. Cures all. Extraordinary, extraordinary resource. But people don't really take it very seriously. So people go to the doctor and uh, with their symptoms, and they well, I got cancer. What about this Foster drug? Well, I don't worry about that. Anything will do. Try anything. Nothing is proven. They're all as good as one another. So you get individuals in trouble. You get whole nations suffering needlessly. So Dr. Foster takes out this massive international campaign. Wherever you go, there are billboards saying, Foster Dioxapran. It works. It really works. Now, you could assume to yourself that Foster, he's, got, he's just got a, you know, he's just a bit full of himself, isn't he? Advertising everywhere, just a little bit arrogant, wanting his name on the billboards. Or you could say, he's publicizing that he can save. What is wrong with that? That is an act of kindness. That is an act of generosity, a determination that people would know that he could save. That's a good thing. And just so when God raises up his name and says, I want my name to be exalted, that's so people go, look on and say, oh, that saves, that works. That, that saves for eternity. That's what he does, God, that God. Oh, actually, he truly satisfies 
in this life in a way that no one else does. That's a good thing. So you just see that it's good that the name of the Lord is raised up. Knowing the right name matters. So when God says, I will act for the sake of my name, thank him. He's doing it for our good. But don't think that means, like Israel did, well, we'll be okay. God will save us because we're nice. He doesn't do it because you're nice. He doesn't save anyone because they're nice. He does it for the sake of his name, so that people recognize he's the God who saves. He and he alone. God will act for the sake of his name. As the first. Second thing, he's going to act, and the Lord's action is radical. It's radical action. I hope you noticed when um, uh, Ron read uh, verses 24 to 30, I will, I will, I will. Verse 24, I will. Verse 25, I will. Verse 26, I will. Verse 27, and I will. Verse 29, I will. Again, I will. Verse 30, I will. Let me change it. Verse 31, you will. God is saying, you need me. Despair of yourself, trust in me. And that is a biblical Christianity. A biblical Christianity begins with God saying, I will. And false forms of Christianity and all other religions begin with, you will. The God saying to humans, you need to do something. You need to scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. God says, look, that's, I will. I will. I will. I take the initiative and you can do nothing. I will. Let's, run them, let's um, try and run through them fairly quickly. I will. Verse um, 24 is the first one. Uh, I will take you out of the nations. Essentially, verse 24, I will take you back to the land. I will take you back to the land. Now, once this may seem the least exciting to us, but remember, in Old Testament thinking and patterns um, in the Old Testament The land, you can only live in the land if God has changed you. You can only live in the the land if you have a relationship with God. So in order for the people to go back into the land, God is going to have to do something to them. Transform them. Because when they lived in the land before, they were just a pile of used tampons. Now, to take them back, there's going to be transformation. I will take you back to the land. Verse 25, I will... Cleanse you from sin, is verse 25. I'll cleanse you. The picture there, naturally, all humans are filthy. We can't come before God. We're covered with muck, and he is pure, and we can't come before him. But the work of Jesus Christ cleanses, washes us clean, not physically, but morally. God says, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will change your heart. I'll change your heart. So verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's a lovely picture. I was watching something, the other, I was at the theater the other night. It was just a common line people use. What did the one actor say to another? You just have a heart of stone. Now we know what that means. You don't care. If your spouse, if your parents say to you, you just have a heart of stone. You don't care. There's no affection. God says, I'm going to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. 
Now, at the risk of being fairly obvious, flesh is more sensitive than stone. It just kind of works that way. For both pleasure and pain. So if everyone has a point in their body, you know, you can discuss it afterwards with the person next to you if you know them, if you know them quite well. Everyone has a part of their body, whereas if you stroke it, everyone has that part of their body. Feet, whatever. We all have a little bit where we're just very sensitive. Our flesh is sensitive to pleasure. Just have that part. And our flesh is also sensitive to pain. So it doesn't take much, just a little pin. Mm, and it hurts. Just a little jab. Why do you do that? That hurts. We're sensitive. Flesh is sensitive. And God says, I'll take away your heart that doesn't care. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. That is, you will now care. You will now enjoy the things of me which are, you'll, you'll, you'll taste heaven's joys as we sung a little earlier. You will love me and see me as good. You'll see me now and think, God, you are wonderful. We'll be sensitive to pleasure but sensitive to pain as well. We'll look at things, we'll look at our sin, our mistakes, our failures, and think, oh, no, that hurts. I don't like that. In a way, beforehand, we thought, does it really matter? I'll change your heart, he says. Because when God regenerates, it transforms us. Verse 27, I will empower you by my spirit. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, this is very striking, I think. If someone came to you and said, I've been greatly filled with the Spirit, what would you expect to see? Obedience. You see that, verse 27? I'll put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When the Spirit comes... His work is to teach us the law of God, empower us to live lives of obedience. See, if anyone ever says, I've been greatly anointed by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, what you expect to see then is is a changed life, obedience. That's according to Ezekiel. I had a um, uh, very nice lecturer at college, theological college, James Robson. He did his PhD on Ezekiel. Um, and um, that's keen Um, and uh, particularly on the relationship what does the spirit do when it comes in Ezekiel and I you know he taught me all sorts of things I didn't realize you realize um, the spirit of God appears in the book of Ezekiel more than any other book of the Bible do you know that it's the most spirit-filled book if you want to know about the work of the Holy Spirit go to Ezekiel okay it's longer than most proportionally how it turns up there's more about the spirit in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible 30 20 I can't remember what he said a few years ago. Uh, A lot of times. Um, But he made the point very clearly, when the Spirit comes in Ezekiel, it leads to obedience. So back in chapters 1 to 3, when the Spirit comes upon Ezekiel himself, the Spirit changes him and Ezekiel obeys and is the faithful watchman. And here the picture is when the Spirit comes upon the people of God, he will change them so their lives are obedient. I will send my spirit, empower you to live differently, says the Lord. And I can't, I apologize, I've used this before with some will have heard this. But I think as clear as I've got on this is um, the idea of uh, wax, a lump of sealing wax. You know the old sort of sealing wax um, 
you'd have on, you rarely see it these days, medieval parchments would have it, and you'd get a big ring and stamp your ring so everyone would know. You'd put your seal in the sealing wax. The only time you get it now, I think, is at elections when people vote and ballot boxes are sealed with wax with an official stamp in it. You know, that sort of old, I mean, we don't, not many of us use it at work on our emails. That would sort of mess up the computer a bit. Um, But our hearts are a bit like that wax. When it's cold, not a lot happens. You can take a ring or a seal and try and seal cold, hard wax, and all you get is a few scratches on the surface. That's all that will happen. But if you melt the wax just a little bit and you push the seal in, perfect. A perfect representation of the seal in melted wax. In one sense, that's a picture of the Spirit's work upon our hearts. So naturally, our hearts are cold. And so God's instruction, his teaching in the Bible, his law, is a bit like the, uh, the seal, and it comes upon a cold heart. They might make a few scratches and impressions. People can convince themselves to do all sorts of things just by digging deep and being moral. It'll make a little bit of impression, but not really. But when the Spirit of God comes and melts our hearts, gives us new hearts, then the Word of God comes and makes a lovely impression upon it. We're changed, transformed. I will give you, sorry, I will empower you by my Spirit. Last one, um, verse uh, 28. I'll be your God. You'll live in the land I gave you your forefathers. You'll be my people. I will be your God. And that has some lovely outcomes. Uh, It comes just a little bit later, verse 37. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I'll yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. Everything will change. When the Spirit of God comes and brings you new life and you have a new birth, God says, I'm your God now. I'll listen to you, verse 37. I'll hear your pleas. When you pray, I am listening to everything you say. I'll always hear you once you have the Spirit of God in you, once you're born again. But you see, the, the, the um, cumulative effect of all these I wills, I wills, I will, it's radical change. It's radical change. That's what's going on here. I bring you back to the land, cleanse you from sin, empower you by my Spirit. I'll be your God. It's change, transformation. When you are born again by God's Spirit, you, you are transformed You can live a life which is pleasing to God in a way you never could before, not perfectly. But you have an ability to live and honor him in a way you never had before. Let me try and push this a little bit. Uh, It's a familiar illustration, perhaps. A a caterpillar. Caterpillar. I mean, I don't know what your life is like as a caterpillar. You sort of, you know, crawl along and crawl along. The, I'm not going to get on the ground to see. But, you know, you sort of crawl along the ground. And life is a bit mundane, isn't it? If you're a caterpillar, you sort of crawl along the ground a little bit. And uh, you, you nibble a green leaf. If you're the very hungry caterpillar, you eat all sorts of ice creams and things like that, if anyone remembers that book. But, you know, life is fairly mundane. You sort of just... And every so often flying above your head, there are these birds. And they're your enemies, of course. They're going to eat you, so watch out for them. But you look at them and think, oh, flying amazing. But then you just crawl along and you eat another leaf and you eat another leaf. And then one day you have a nice little sleep. Actually, it's quite a long sleep in caterpillar terms. Uh, you sleep for a long time and then you wake up. You think, oh, I feel a bit different. And uh, you start to crawl and then all of a sudden, whoa, 
And you start singing to yourself, I believe I can fly. (laughs) And you can. And you can. And you take off and you can fly. And life is very different. Life is... You can fly with the birds now. That which you, you could not do beforehand, now you can fly. When the Spirit of God enters your life, you are very different. It may not feel very different. Let me give you two examples. The, um, the first example, if you've ever read um, A Surprise by Joy, it's the, it's the testimony of um, C.S. Lewis, who went on to be a, a great um, Christian writer, best known for his no- novels, I guess. But uh, Surprised by Joy, he talks about how he was uh, converted. Uh, became a Christian, who was born again. Now, he spent the night before, I think it was a Tuesday night, he spent the night before talking to his good mate, J.R. Tolkien, uh, and they uh, worked together and were very good friends. And he said that laid the groundwork. And then the next day, he had to get a bus into the centre of Oxford. And he got on the bus, and by the, end of, by the end of his journey, he thought to himself, I'm a Christian. That was quite unremarkable. But I've changed, and life will not be the same now. Now, he's, quite, he's an Englishman, so if you're an Englishman, it might happen in that sort of way. He's a sort of real Englishman, sort of, you know, slightly buttoned up, tired. So just, just a bus journey, just reflecting on what he thought about the night before. Got to the end of his journey and said, no, I believe you're there now, God. I'm committing the rest of my life to you. Fairly unspectacular. That may be like that. Or a few hundred years earlier, uh, George Whitfield George Whitfield, you may have worked out, I've been reading a biography, that's why he comes up most weeks at the moment. Um, But George Whitfield, uh, uh, then he went off to Oxford, um, again as a young man, and uh, was not a Christian. And uh, fell in with a a gang of brothers, the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley. He found them a little enthusiastic for his taste. But um, uh, one day he was given a book. Let me read to you uh, uh, just a little bit of a quote from his own testimony. This is George Whitfield, the uh, great 18th century evangelist. I must bear testimony to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hand. It was called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or damned forever. No, so a fairly down-the-line book, I think you'd probably say. God, you just put that in my hand. Here, here, George, have a read of this. Thank you very much. What happened then? I realized I must be born again. So I determined that I would make myself born again. I chose the worst sort of food. I fasted twice a week. My apparel, clothing, was mean. I wore woolen gloves, a patch gown, dirty shoes. I constantly walked out in the cold mornings until part of one of my hands was black. I became quite ill. I was restricted to a bed by a physician. At one point, I simply lay on my bed and cried out to God, Help, I thirst. The um, biographer puts in, it was perhaps the first time he'd called out to God in utter helplessness. Whitfield, at the moment of total surrender, a new thought came into my heart. George, you have what you asked. You ceased to struggle. You simply believed and you are born again. I don't know if those help. In one sense, one is fairly dramatic. This guy sort of making himself absolutely ill. I will be born again until he says, hold on a minute. God, can you do that for me? Yeah, I can do that. And he he becomes a Christian. (laughs) The other one, C.S. Lewis, probably smoking his pipe on the bus, 
Um, oh, I know, I think it's probably... No, fairly different ways. But the point is, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, and many of us, of course, are Christians and have known this. Maybe we remember it, maybe we're not. Maybe it was dramatic, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But our life is different. And if we forget that, then we'll forget the power that God has given us to, to be different, to be transformed, to change. So God will act. Uh, the Lord's, uh, the motive is his name. The Lord's action is radical. Last thing, our response. Our response, well, surprisingly, it's shame and wonder. Look with me at verse 31, 32. So God stops the I wills and it becomes you will. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed. Be disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. Remember your sin. Loathe yourself. Be ashamed be disgraced. Oh. Huh. Again, here is, according to Ezekiel, one sure and certain mark that the Spirit of God is active in your life. You grieve your sin. I mean, that's what he says, isn't it? And again, so, you know, sometimes people might say, oh, you know, the Spirit is so mightily at work in my life. And a suitable Ezekiel sort of question would be, and what are you lamenting at the moment? What are you desperate to change? Because that's a sure mark that the Spirit is at work in someone's heart, in their life. Now, I don't think we should be too surprised at this. Of course, the New Testament teaches as well. Jesus' famous parable, uh, Luke 18, there's a tax collector, sorry, there's a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says... I'm pretty good. Thank you for everything you've done in my life, God. Thank you very much. All is well. Thank you very much. You've done lots of good things in my life. And the other one, the tax collector says, Lord, I thank you that you have mercy on me. I'm so wretched. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's the one who's got it right, who grieves, who mourns his sin. Or the Apostle Paul, who plants more churches, sees more people converted, you know, than, than anyone else, etc., etc. How does he, right at the end of his ministry, 1 Timothy chapter 1, describes himself right at the end of his life as the worst of sinners. He grieves his sin. In his great letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 7, who will save me from this body of death? What a wretched man I am. He grieves his sin. Entirely appropriate mark of the Spirit at work in someone's life. Now, of course, the world will say to be ashamed, that's just morbid. It's just gloomy. The Bible would say, no, it's just honesty. And the two are different. It's just realism. Tears over our failures are appropriate. Or again, George Whitfield, let me give you something from his um, diary. Um, in uh, 1838, there were full four pulpits in London that he was allowed to preach in as an evangelical. Four Anglican pulpits. All the other churches shut because they hated what he was teaching, that you needed to be born again. But he's after, he's after preaching uh, one day uh, in London. I am nothing. I have nothing. 
I can do nothing without God. What although I may, like a polished tomb, appear, I may appear a little beautiful to some people without, yet I'm full of pride, self-love, all manner of corruption. However, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if it should please God to make me instrumental to do the least good unto him, well, to him be glory, not to me. Well, there's one of the, possibly the greatest Christian evangelists, certainly for the last thousand years. He says, I'm a bit of a mess, really. I confess my sins every day. Oh. Why so important? If there's never a sense of shame over our behavior, there'll never be humility. We should be very pleased with ourselves, very proud of the things we can achieve. If there's no sense of shame, well, I fear for you, actually. If you never grieve over your behavior, how you treat God, how you treat others, I fear for you. I fear for me if that's, ever, if that's, if that's my pattern. Because an appropriate despairing of self, grief over sin, is entirely normal for the Christian. Now, of course, we need to put that alongside the hope of the gospel. If we just had a sense of shame, that would be gloomy and miserable and crushing. But you take that sense of shame and say, I am a failure, but Jesus Christ was not. I've put my hope in him. Therefore, I am washed clean from my sin. Therefore, God views me as acceptable in his sight and he loves me. Both of those things are true. And you do need both. So, look, it's a little thing. Let me try and give you one practical help. A little thing someone gave to me years ago. Whatever I read in the morning when I come to read a Bible, whatever I read, I want to confess it and praise Jesus for it. So if I'm reading out the book of Isaiah, and it's, whatever it is, Isaiah 57, and it's about the wonder of God and how extraordinary God is, I want to confess... Look, look, I want to say, first of all, Lord, you are wonderful. And I confess, I don't always think of you that way. I domesticate you, and I find you a little bit inconvenient at times. I praise you alongside that, though, that Jesus never did. He always loved you. He always wondered about how great you were. So alongside my failure is his success. Now, you put those two things together. You have your identity shaped by the gospel. And the two reinforce one another. Because the more you know you're forgiven, the more you're willing to explore your sin. And the more you explore your sin, the more you realize you need to be forgiven. The two go hand in hand together. But do you see the mark of the Spirit of God is, yeah, convincing us that we're wretched. Despair of yourself, says Ezekiel. Despair of yourself. But hope in the Lord. Hope in Him. Do that for yourself as an individual. If there's something you just desperately want to change, despair of yourself, trust in Him, look to Him, pray. For us as a nation, and what's this, the Church of England, it's in a mess. If I'm honest, you know, in some of you know that, it's in a real mess. It's been a lot worse. 300 years ago, George Whitfield, an evangelical, four churches in London would let him preach. 
nowhere else. But from that man and contemporaries, the Church of England completely transformed in the 18th century. Revival brought by the Spirit of God. So if, we, if you want to see things change in this country, let alone within yourself, despair of what we might be able to achieve. I mean, you can work hard, of course, but put your hope in God. And if you don't pray, don't expect a huge amount to happen. Put your hope in God. Lean on Him. Despair of yourself. Trust in Him. Trust that He will act for His name. And pray that He will. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you as we've thought this evening that you act for the sake of your name, not because we are worthy, not because there is anything impressive about us. We are wretched, and yet you will act for the sake of your name. You will act so that many come and look upon you and say, you are wonderful. You are wonderful in saving people who are completely undeserving. We thank you that you act for the sake of your name. Amen.